Uh, ladies and gentlemen, good evening and uh, welcome to the LSE. And tonight's lecture is a joint presentation by the Middle East Centre of the LSE and the Society for Algerian Studies. Um, my name is Bill Sinton and I'm the honorary president of the Society for Algerian Studies and about 10 or 12 years ago I was the British ambassador in Algiers. Um, the main activity of the Society for Algerian Studies is putting on um, lectures occasionally in partnership with the Middle East Centre, um, for example, this evening. Uh, most of the lectures are about Algeria, naturally enough, but um, occasionally we spread our wings to the wider Maghreb, and that's what we are doing this evening with Jonathan Hill. Um, we're always on the lookout for new members in the Society for Algerian Studies. We especially welcome younger members, so if anyone is interested in joining, they can get membership form from Zineb Lalawin here in the front row. <coughs> um, now I would like to extend a warm welcome from us all to Jonathan Hill, Dr. Jonathan Hill, who is uh, tonight's uh, speaker. Um, he needs really no introduction from me. <coughs> But nevertheless, um, he is a very eminent specialist on the Maghreb. He has written extensively about its politics and its recent history. He has had a series of relevant academic posts, and he has advised governments and international organizations on the Maghreb. Uh, Jonathan is now a reader in post-colonialism and the Maghreb at King's College London. He is also a visiting fellow at the Middle East Centre here in the LSE. And I'm delighted to say he has joined the Committee of the Society for Algerian Studies. So this evening is very much home from home for Jonathan. His topic this evening is democratization in the Maghreb, and this is also the title of his forthcoming book, which will be published by the Edinburgh University Press, we hope in the summer, in July. Is that right? That's right, yes. Um, <clears throat> now, Jonathan has kindly agreed to take questions from the audience uh, after his talk. So without more ado, Jonathan, you have the floor. Thank you very much. <coughs> and thank you to you all for, for coming along. It's, it's uh, very gratifying to see so many people uh, tip out and come and listen to me uh, to speak. Just by way of, e of explanation, if you're thinking he's at King's but got a visiting fellowship at LSE, that's a bit weird uh, <laughs> since they're about 200 yards apart. Um, I'm based in the Defence Studies Department 
which is located at the Joint Services Command and Staff College in the pretty village of Shrivenham in South Oxfordshire. So although I'm employed by King's, I'm not actually based in London. That's my excuse for having the, uh, the, Ellis, the LSE Fellowship. Um, and what I want to talk about this evening is essentially to give you an overview of, uh, as Bill said, my forthcoming book, Democratization of the Maghreb, uh, which will be published later this year. Um, and essentially set out its sort of uh, broadly what it's about uh, and, and its main uh, findings as well. Um, I'll be very happy to talk about uh, any part of it um, or, or anything else sort of related to the, the four countries uh, that are covered by it. Um, at the front, there are uh, Edinburgh <coughs> very kindly provided me with some flyers which give you a, a discount. Um, uh, for the hardback edition, which makes it from, from very expensive to just expensive. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful, though, in due course, I probably shouldn't tell you this, I'm hopeful in due course that they will bring out in paperback, which should make it cheaper still. Um, but, but nevertheless, if you have the urge to buy a copy, don't fight it. Um, and it's always wise to get a spare as well. You never know what's going to happen. So um, there are flyers uh, at the front. Um, now, the Maghreb's political developments um, continues, arguably, to confound uh, expectations, uh, certainly popular expectations, and arguably academic expectations as well. Few specialists prior to the start of the Arab Spring anticipated its start. Fewer still thought that it was going to start in Tunisia, uh, which has long been regarded, or was long regarded, as one of the quieter corners of this particular region as one of its more stable and prosperous countries. Then when the demonstrations actually did break out, most of these same specialists assumed that Ben Ali, President Ben Ali, would deal with them relatively easily. Not only had he overcome similar challenges in the past, but he had the support of a large, well-funded and experienced security apparatus the shock of these specialists at his downfall less than a month later was compounded by the simultaneous outbreak of similar protests elsewhere in the region, including Libya's descent into uh, civil war, from which it is, it is still struggling to escape. Many of these specialists then quickly revised their uh, expectations and predictions and issued millennial uh, prophecies about what was going to happen next. Unrest, they argued, would soon sweep the region. None of its leaders and governments would be spared. Algeria looked especially vulnerable. Yet many of these forecasts have proved to be just as inaccurate as the conservative assumptions which preceded them. While the Arab Spring has undoubtedly wrought many significant changes to the Maghreb, its impact has not been as great as came to be predicted. In large parts of the region, political life has continued very much as before. Monarchy, Morocco's monarchy has not surrendered any of its core powers, let alone become fully constitutional. Mauritania is still governed by the ex-general and former coup d'etat leader, Mohamed Old Abdelaziz, 
and Algeria's 2014 election, uh, which comes up quite a lot in these talks, was uh, won comfortably by the long-serving, aging, yet seriously ill incumbent Abdelaziz Bouteflika. A critical mistake made by many commentators was to overemphasize Tunisia's similarity to its near neighbors. They deduced that if comparable circumstances to those that had led to Ben Ali's fall could be found throughout the rest of the region, then its other leaders were likely to suffer the same fate. Their suppositions and hypotheses were given additional weight and credibility by the outbreak of equally decisive protests in other parts of the Middle East. Hosni Mubarak's uh, well-publicised demise was widely seen as both a sign and a prelude, as evidence of the region's hunger and readiness for change and the continued power of this transformational impulse and movement to enact it. Soon, they predicted the whole region would succumb to its transformational energy. These assumptions were not without foundation. The countries of the Maghreb do share a great deal in common, and their likeness are, is accentuated by the region's exceptionalism. Indeed, the Maghreb is defined by separation and by similarity. It is distinct and distinguished from the regions that surround it, from the Middle East, from Europe, and from sub-Saharan Africa. Yet its ties to the leech are as numerous as they are varied, ancient as they are self-renewing, and strong as they are subtle and nuanced. Moreover, it is these connections that make it different. For the Maghreb is effectively the sum of its parts. It is hybrid, it is distinct from these other regions because of the influence of them all. Similarity has a created singularity. Yet there are also important differences within the Maghreb, within the region, between its various assorted parts, peoples, and cultures. Indeed, it is these variations which hold the key to explaining the region's competing political trajectories. Why Morocco has not gone the same way as Tunisia. Why Abdelaziz Bouteflika remains in office and why the Mauritanian regime endures. The aim of my book is to try and better capture and contextualize these disparities while paying all necessary and due attention to the similarities that exist. And it seeks to do so by charting and examining and comparing the political development of four of the region's countries, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and Mauritania, <coughs> over the past ten years. And to structure and guide its analysis, it draws on Stephen Levitsky and Luke and Way's celebrated concept of competitive authoritarianism and associated model for explaining regime transitions, as set out in their 2010 book, Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War. 
I'm going to say a little bit about this model now. Now, arguably, its primary purpose is to explain the, an even spread of democracy among what they call competitive authoritarian regimes. Levitsky, in a way, argue that such regimes are largely a product of the end of the Cold War. The conflict's conclusion, the end of the Cold War, not only triggered a sharp decline in international tolerance of authoritarian practices and the governments that employed them, but also sparked the rapid diffusion of the formal architecture of democracy and particularly multi-party elections around the world. These developments led to the emergence of civilian regimes in which formal democratic institutions exist and are widely viewed as the primary means of gaining power, but in which incumbents' abuse of the state places them at a significant advantage vis-a-vis their opponents. The model, their model, seeks to explain, therefore, why some of these regimes democratised during the post-Cold War period, while others remain stable and authoritarian, and still others experience turnover without democratisation. Now, to do so, the model focuses on both international and domestic factors, and it's, its emphasis on international factors, which arguably separates it from other uh, theses and, uh, and, and models. It focuses on regimes' ties to the West and the strength of their governing party and state organisations. These factors, these international and domestic factors, are covered by their core dimensions of linkage, uh, leverage and organisational power, which are in turn divided into sub-dimensions. They have various constituent parts. To deal with the first linkage, Levitsky and Way define that as the density of ties between a regime and European and North American countries. Now, these bonds, these ties, these links can take a range of forms. The most significant, they argue, are economic, intergovernmental, technocratic, social, information, and civil society. So they cover a very broad range, pretty much the the entire range of of human activity and interaction. In contrast, leverage is defined less by the amount of pressure European and North American governments can put on a regime, but rather the ability of that regime uh, to to withstand any outside influence. The Witzke way argue that the amount of leverage the West has over a regime is determined by the size and strength of its economy, the size of its GDP, and its state structures, the consistency with which European and North American governments foreign policies towards that regime, the degree to which they maintain the same line over a period of time, and also the constancy with which they pursue and coordinate their efforts with one another extent to which France, Spain, the European Union, the United States coordinate their foreign policies towards a regime. And the final factor is whether this regime has the backing of what they call a black knight patron. This is a powerful country 
which provides support that enables the regime to withstand pressure put on it from outside. The final dimension, so we've had linkage leverage, the final dimension is organizational power. This is the domestic sphere. And that concerns the ability of a regime to sustain itself. Now, Levitsky and Way observe that a modern authoritarianism is complex and costly. To survive, a regime needs to dissuade a, a diverse social and political a range of, sort of social and political actors from challenging it, as well as maintain the loyalty and cooperation of an equally diverse range of powerful individuals and groups within society. Now, crucial to a regime's ability to perform this function, to sustain itself, are its state and party structures. For, as Levitsky and Way go on to argue, effective state and party structures enhance incumbents' capacity to prevent elite defection, co-opt or oppress uh, opponents, diffuse or crack down on protests, and win and or steal elections. Effectively, these structures enable it to uh, make sure that those with power work together uh, to crack down on opposition and also uh, rig elections where necessary. A regime's organisational power is determined, therefore, by the cohesion, reach and mobilisation capacity of its ruling party and the size, effectiveness and experience of its security forces very broadly defined, military, police, gendarmerie, intelligence, and security services. Now, in the book, I argue that Levitsky and Way's model provides an ideal framework for this particular inquiry for three main reasons. First, because it's specifically designed to systematically capture and explain similarities and differences in experience. Second, the symmetry of uh, circumstances, I think, uh, encourages its renewed use. This model was, after all, developed in order to explain uh, the experiences of a range of regimes in the wake of the Cold War, uh, triggered by the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's only fitting, therefore, in some ways, that it be applied to this most recent uh, transnational uh, mass wave of political upheaval. And third, uh, the model has never been applied to these particular countries, which are only very imperfectly covered in their original 2010 study. The book's choice of case studies, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and Mauritania, is in turn informed by two key considerations. The first, by selecting these countries, um, I, I, I seek an endeavour to uncover and chart regional-wide themes and issues. Doing so not only allows it to determine the ways and extent to which events in each country influence one another, but also to compile uh, what is hopefully a carefully structured overview of the wider region's development over uh, this particular period, uh, before, during, and after the Arab Spring. And I very deliberately exclude Libya, uh, the other Middle Eastern country, uh, the other Maghreb country, uh, because of its uh, condition of, of civil war. Unfortunately, it's, it's too unstable to be able to uh, apply 
uh, Levitsky and Way's model. So where does this, uh, where does this where does it all get us? Well, the book argues that Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and Mauritania were all competitive authoritarian a decade ago. That only Tunisia is now fully democratic, and that while Morocco, Algeria, and Mauritania have remained competitive authoritarian, they have done so for different reasons. More specifically, the book demonstrates that the United States and European Union had high linkage to and high leverage over Ben Ali's regime. Nevertheless, they did not put as much democratizing pressure on Ben Ali as they could have done. Their failure to do so was born, um, uh, was born uh, uh, of reluctance. Um, they were reluctant to, to press him as hard as they could. Um, and the inability and unwillingness of Western governments and different parts of the European Union to better coordinate their activities and policies with one another, to better coordinate their leverage. Ben Ali's regime fell, and the country made the transition to democracy because of the weakness of its organizational power. Uh, and in particular, an insuperable division between its uh, armed and security forces, and the ruling party's uh, brittle cohesion due to a lack of non-material ties. So in essence, Tunisia's uh, transition to democracy came about due to domestic factors uh, because of uh, key weaknesses in its uh, domestic strength, uh, which were uh, slightly surprising. The book argues that the United States and European Union have medium linkage to and low leverage over uh, Bouteflika's regime in Algeria. Some connections, technocratic, social, information and civil society, are arguably stronger than others, most notably economic and intergovernmental. And for reasons rooted in history, Algiers remains far more wary about joining Western policy frameworks. The European Union has created a range over the years. Um, and agreeing treaties with Washington and Brussels uh, it means far more wary to do any of that than Tunis and Rabat. And it remains wary for fear of diminishing its hard-won sovereignty and freedom of manoeuvre. And as a major oil-producing country with a large economy, it is well-equipped well to resist whatever democratising pressure the United States and European Union are willing and able to put on it. In actual fact, though, Washington and Brussels are disinclined to press Algiers too hard to democratise for fear of undermining its ability to counter the various Islamist terror groups that operate within its territory in the wider region or impair its oil and gas provision. Finally, Algiers has got strong organisational power based on a large, well-funded and battle-hardened security apparatus which is still led by men who have extensive personal experience of uh, winning and retaining political power. The book argues that the United States and European Union have got, has got high linkage to and low leverage over the Moroccan regime. Rabat is the West's 
closest ally in the region and has eagerly joined all of the European Union's and the United States' various policy frameworks at the earliest opportunity. Its large economy, however, means that despite doing so, despite joining these frameworks, despite uh, essentially signing up uh, and, and seemingly providing both Washington and Brussels an opportunity to exert political influence, the size of its economy and the effectiveness of its security forces, so its organizational power, mean that the West is less able to put decisive democratizing pressure on it. Furthermore, and as with Tunisia under Ben Ali and Algeria, the West is disinclined to press it too hard to democratize. Again, for concerns about undermining the regime and its capacity to act as a bulwark against Islamist terrorism within uh, the wider region. And finally, the United States and European Union have medium links to and medium leverage over Abdelaziz's regime in Mauritania. Now, with the four case studies that the book looks at, Mauritania has the fewest ties to the United States and European Union and belongs to only one EU policy framework, the Union for the Mediterranean. And it has no trade agreements with the United States. And uniquely of the four case studies examined by the book, most members of its diaspora, it has a large diaspora, but most members of this diaspora don't live in Europe, but in other African countries. Moreover, it is neither a major nor an intermediate economic power. It doesn't have any nuclear weapons, lucky for it. Uh, it has a small economy, um, and it no longer has the backing of a black knight patron, uh, which I mentioned at the start. During the late 1980s and early 1990s, it had the support of Saddam Hussein's Iraq, but that has obviously gone by the by. The Mauritanian regime, Abdelaziz's regime, also has only medium organizational power, as both its security apparatus and ruling party lack both scope and cohesion. Nevertheless, its medium links to the West mean that Washington, Brussels, Paris, and Madrid are uh, less inclined to put consistent democratizing pressure on it. Again, for fear of undermining the regime in the face of Islamist terrorism, and also, uh, in the case of Mauritania, um, its role as, uh, as, as, a, as a, essentially a, a recipient country for um, irregular and illegal migrants uh, traveling up the continent. Um, now, this uh, examination and analysis uh, of the book leads it to make um, at least, or I think, at least three uh, original contributions. Now, to begin with, it's the first to use Levitskian Way's model to structure its interrogation of Tunisia's, Morocco's, and Mauritania's recent experiences. It's not the first to apply them to Algeria. I did that a little while ago in an article. Um, it's also the first to use their model to compare the four countries, though. Um, over this particular period of time. And in adopting this uh, particular approach, it is able to contextualize, I argue, the start, progression, and end of the Arab Spring and examine the interplay between the international and domestic factors. 
The second original contribution I think the book makes is that it's the first to focus on these four countries alone, which sounds uh, a bit lame in some ways, but I, I think is worth highlighting, uh, as most studies of the Arab Spring tend to look at some of these countries, usually Tunisia and Libya, uh, and, and combine them with others. Very few look at uh, these four alone. Mauritania in particular is, is excluded, and, and focus on the Maghreb by itself. And the third uh, original contribution I think the book makes is that it extends and develops Levitsky and Way's uh, model. More specifically, it argues that uh, Algeria shows us that history and geography are not neutral enablers of strong links between a country and the West, as Levitsky and Way suggest. Sometimes, in fact, these shared experiences can... Uh, uh, facilitated in Algeria's case by geographic proximity, can have the reverse effect and can actually uh, deter the forging of certain closer types of connection. Algeria's wariness about joining some of the EU's policy framework, most notably the Union for the Mediterranean, is directly informed by its extended uh, period of colonisation by France and the high price it had to pay to secure its independence. Algeria continues to guard its hard-won sovereignty and freedom of, of manoeuvre very jealously. Uh, and this lesson also reinforces the value of comparative analysis, since Algeria's weaker intergovernmental links become far more apparent when you compare them to those of Tunisia and Morocco. Morocco and Algeria also demonstrate that Levitsky and Way's model can be applied to regimes in which unelected executives and what they call tutelary uh, authorities wield significant political power. While neither King Mohammed nor the Algerian armed forces have to submit directly to the vote to renew their mandates, their authority and positions in their respective political systems are still profoundly affected by elections and their outcomes. Who wins and on what platforms has huge implications for their roles and the extent of their influence. They, like all competitive authoritarian regimes, need a degree of democracy achieved mainly through the staging of regular multi-party elections to satisfy Western opinion uh, and assuage domestic opposition. Yet, these ballots are rarely as free and fair as they arguably could be, and the political playing field still remains heavily tilted in favour of pro-regime parties and candidates. Um, the Moroccan and Algerian regimes have also forged different working relationships with their respective ruling parties. Unlike either Mauritania's Abdelaziz, or in particular Ben Ali when he was in power in Tunisia, um, who, who, who conform more closely to Levitsky and Way's model, King Mohammed and Bouteflika do not rely on any one party. They do not privilege and elevate it to necessarily the same extent or the same height as, as Ben Ali did. <coughs> Instead, they court and favour uh, several parties, both alternately and simultaneously. The Istiklal and the Justice and Development Party in Morocco and the National Rally for Democracy and FLN in uh, in, uh, in Algeria must compete with one another and other parties for hosts, power and prestige. 
that these two regimes of the four examined in the book should take this approach suggests an interesting correlation between the presence of an, an unelected executive or tutory authority and the ability of those in power to dispense with more conventional ruling party. Seemingly because they are less directly dependent on elections, these authorities uh, can afford to create and build up organizations uh, or to, uh, to, to avoid having to create organizations which can in turn limit their authority. Um, and finally, I'll, I'll, I'll move on to the, on to the last uh, conclusion. I think the book also confirms the importance of Levitsky and Way's, one of Levitsky and Way's key caveats, that where Western powers have countervailing economic or strategic interests at stake, autocratic governments often possess the bargaining power to ward off external demands for democracy by casting themselves and regime stability as the best means of protecting those interests. The same can undoubtedly also be said of competitive authoritarian regimes. A common feature of all the case studies that I look at in the book uh, is the extent to which the West has avoided putting as much democratizing pressure on them as it could, even after, it, uh, even after the European Union uh, sheepishly declared its intention to remain on the right side of history. The West has avoided doing so for fear of impairing the ability of these regimes to pursue some strategic line or other which is deemed essential and necessary by uh, the US, EU, or European governments. This vital qualification, I think, not only helps preserve the analytical rigor of Levitsky and Way's model, but also explains why Ben Ali's regime was, and Algeria, Morocco, Mauritania have remained competitive authoritarian, why Ben Ali was able to stay in power so long, and why these other regimes have survived. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. That was a very interesting talk, which raises questions in my mind, no doubt in the minds of the audience also. This is your opportunity to um, ask any questions of, Don, of uh, Jonathan. Um, if anybody does want to ask a question, would you please wait till the microphone reaches you, and then we can all hear it. So, um, is there anyone who would like to start the ball rolling? Oh, right away, the gentleman in the middle. All right, so on. Uh, just brief question. Doesn't, don't you feel the model sort of overestimates the influence of outside powers? As you said, Tunisia is the exception, mostly because domestic factors allowed it to be so. Does the model over, ever emphasize the influence? Um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a key part of them, and there are certain assumptions that they make which you can, you can certainly engage with and, and if, if, you, if you feel inclined, take to task. So they, they definitely see um, uh, the EU and the US as democratizing forces around the world and proximity to them as critical to the likelihood of you 
uh, of a regime democratizing. Um, I mean, in, in some ways, um, as they argue, this is a, a remedy to, to perhaps the neglect of external powers that, that, that uh, other models um, that, uh, display. Um, but in terms of, of overemphasizing their importance, I, I, I think in some ways what, what the, the, these case studies is demonstrate is just how uh, ineffective they, they ultimately were. Um, uh, that doesn't necessarily invalidate their model because they have these other important caveats, but it, it does show you the limits to which, you know, if you were to say how much influence does the EU have over, over Morocco, you would say a lot for all of these reasons, but it has to be balanced against the other parts of their model. And personally, that's, that's why I think it has, um, I think that's its great strength and why it has so much currency. So, yeah. Thanks. Hi, um, I couldn't agree more about the, the, the importance of the strength of the organizations, of the regime's organization capability in different countries. Could you talk a little bit about the strength or otherwise of the pro-democracy forces organization capabilities? No, very good question, and that's that's part of the, the uh, that's part of their equation. Um, uh, they, uh, Levitsky and Way, essentially deal with this by saying that they are they are in direct uh, inversion. So, if a, if a regime has a a strong, a coherent, um, and um, uh, uh, they have it has a political party, a ruling party that is cohesive and has good reach throughout the country, and and a security force that is that is similar then the opposition will be weak. And vice versa, if you have a strong opposition, then the, uh, the ruling party and the coercive apparatus will be weak. They see them as being uh, sort of mirror uh, images of one another. Um, one of the ways in which um, uh, international, the European Union and the US can help democratizing forces is by helping opposition um, parties and groups within within a country and those kind of links this is where the, their dimension of linkage is, is so important because it's the means by which um, the West retains interest effectively in what happens in a regime and democratization is diffused uh, from the West to um, to a particular regime does that answer your question Wait, does that happen they, they say it happens in practice. I mean, the, 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 their, their book is essentially, uh, it's, a, it's a, a, a reflective study of a series of case studies. Um, so they have their, their criteria for, for the countries they look at, which I actually extend. Um, and they, they, so they don't just cherry pick them to find ones that, you know, they work and aren't we brilliant. Um, so, but they do demonstrate um, that it has happened um, around the world. So I can't remember how many case studies they have, but it's, it's quite a lot. Hi. Um, the model seems to, I don't know, maybe it's just that this, this side wasn't considered, but uh, the fact that in, in many of these countries there's, there's a lack of con well, confidence or there's a mistrust to political parties and like the average citizen doesn't really engage with them and doesn't really care for them. 
and well, that's part of the, 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 the strengths, of course, of, of, of the monarchy in Morocco, for example. And uh, yeah, I would like you to, you know, address that. If yeah. a, a, a very fair point, and that, that's undoubtedly true. And that would come under, for them, that would come under the, hot, the, the heading of, of oppositional strength. So the, the effectiveness of, of opposition parties, both the degree to which they are constrained and corralled by the regime, uh, which includes the, the extent to which they allow them uh, to be constrained by corralled. I mean, uh, you know, under uh, Tunisia, under Ben Ali, and in Morocco as well, there is a degree to which opposition parties have bought into the system. They accept the, the parameters that are set on them and, and, and the limits and the constraints, and that, that undoubtedly undermines their effectives and certainly ex helps explain why um, some of the, the, the early Arab Spring movements were, were spontaneous and outside the, the, the party structures. Um, yet, one of the ways in which the, the, the Moroccan regime um, responded was by drawing, by essentially formalizing them, by drawing them into the fold and, and, uh, and, and sort of into the formal structures of politics and it, as a way of, of, of better influencing and controlling them. Yes. Yeah, it's st it still it still exists. The, 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 the constitutional, I mean, the, the, the constitutional uh, process of setting up a, a kind of a royal commission to to, to revise the constitution, those sorts of things, it's a way of kind of uh, extending formal influence over over the, the process. Thank you. Uh, the West's pressure for democratization, democratization is a key word. Uh, all external forces that want some change in a given country will be doing it for their own interests. The fact here we have had this uh, democratization or so-called democratization now for several years, has it benefited the local populations in any way? When we are saying this huge uh, crisis that's uh, called the migrant crisis everywhere. But has it really resulted in a more beneficial and more firm, uh, economically viable states? For example, uh, I think especially of Libya, where we have, you know, the, the information shows that it's exactly the opposite in terms of the population there and we see the huge migrant crisis in the Middle East. So uh, what has been the benefits of what we call democratization that you can point out so far? They've been very limited, and I would say that, that Tunisia arguably is, is the one bright spot in an otherwise fairly grey tableau. Um, I, I mean, other, other populations that have, have possibly benefited on the short term, some of the, the, the Gulf states lavished all sorts of resources on their parts of their population as a means of, of, of placating them and, and sort of buying their support. Um, but there are numerous countries throughout the region where the situation is, is very much worse. Libya is, is, is one of them. Syria is, is obviously you know, the, the, the most extreme example. Um, and there's other places where there's not been very much change at all. So uh, as, I, as I mentioned, Morocco and Algeria are pretty much the same as they were when the Arab Spring started. So um, the, 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 the positive comment is that the column of, of the ledger is, 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 is 
pretty short. And I, I, as I say, I would say Tunisia is it. And it's in a delicate situation. It, it faces some challenges. Well, we have, I think, the man in the red got in first. Hello, my name is Hans Ulrich. I write a website called Optimizing Democracy. Uh, just one question on that same note. Um, uh, how do the, um, the state of, let's say, democracy and migration uh, correspond? Do you have uh, any numbers on which country has lost which percent or how many millions of people through migration? Uh, I, I, I don't. I mean, I would, I would guess that Syria is the highest um, by, by some margin. There, there is some, the um, Oxford Migration Centre um, does some very interesting work on, on this. And um, uh, I can't remember the chap's name, but they, the, the head of that has done some, some very interesting work on Morocco. That's his, his main specialism. He's very interested in this particular region. Um, I actually think, linking this back to Levitsky and Way's model, I, I think the migration... Um, crisis that Europe is fail failing is actually going to diminish its appetite um, to promote democratization. I think we're seeing uh, European governments and the EU government wanting prioritizing stability in the region above democratization because democratization is, is seen as unsettling and as, as only likely to add to the migratory pressures. And often the Maghreb countries, you've, you've got two factors. You've got migration from these countries, so Tunisians, Moroccans, Algerians moving to Europe, but also they are important crossover points for, for further down. And certainly Mauritania and Libya under Gaddafi, they acted as, as blocks um, and, and also receiving countries. So the EU could deport people there, and they were also detained by sub-Saharan Africans who were trying to migrate northwards. So at the moment that's been obviously impaired and, and gone. So I think it's, it's hugely connected to um, the future of democracy, democracy in the region and the EU's appetite to promote democracy in the region. So we're in the middle. Um, hi there. My um, interest is in what influence you think the uh, trafficking and smuggling networks that run predominantly north through the Maghreb have on democratization in the region and in reference to, to the model you've been using both organizationally in terms of security forces but also a strategic relationship with Western partners. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, part of my answer to that would be what I've just said. So, the, the, you know, the, the links. Um, I mean, the, the main, the, there is a, quite a large literature on, on the securitization of the EU border and the role of, of Frontex in particular in, 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 in essentially um, uh, sweeping up uh, or, or stopping people from, from migrating across the, the Mediterranean. Um, it's, Frontex is supposed to be expanded. It's also recently um, deployed. They have these, they're called rabbits, these rapid uh, deployment forces They've been deployed for the first time. They were sent to Greece. Um, and some of what they do is, is certainly legally ambiguous, you would say. Um, they, uh, the, the, they bring on local police and law enforcement officers as a means of um, sort of legitimizing arrests, you know, the, the juris areas of jurisdiction and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, so there is very careful exploitation of, of I would say, the law and, and sort of grey areas and, and, and trying to make, make the most of that. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's driven by um, European concerns uh, about, about the, the number of people seeking to migrate to Europe. The man in the grey jacket, as you said. Thank you. Um, is the distinction between monarchy and republics relevant for this model and for the prospects of democratization? Thank you very much. It is relevant for this model, and um, I, I abuse it. Uh, and, and that's one of the extensions that I, that I, that I make, is that Levitsky may actually rule out applying their, their model to any country in which you have an unelected executive. So having a monarchy doesn't necessarily matter. It's whether it exercises significant political power, as it does in the case of Morocco. I essentially wheedle my way around that in a very academic way um, by arguing that even though um, the monarchy isn't elected, it, is, it still has a, a, a great interest in elections and the outcome of these elections, and that's demonstrated by, by various means because of its desire to retain its power. So it's not divorced from the political process, the democratic process at all. It, it, it effectively acts in the same way as other other, or other authoritarian uh, leaders or other undemocratic leaders, rather. Um, more broadly, in terms of the Arab Spring, there is a distinction also between um, democracies and uh, monarchies in that the monarchies have survived. Intriguingly, the, the regimes that have collapsed have all been republics. So how about the gentleman in the corner? Yes. Well, thank you very much for your presentation. And I have uh, one question is, do you think we, for the European Union and Washington, to help, for example, people, I mean, population of these countries, rather than helping government to or the opposition? And uh, uh, what is the relationship in your own uh, uh, point of view between the development and and, uh, and democratization. So we can have democracy without development. Do you think this is a relationship between? Or um, good, good question. And this is um, uh, a, an observation and a criticism that has been, been leveled at the, at the EU support that's been provided um, over the years. Um, that it's through the various policy frameworks that it's initiated, they have kind of different, different areas of, of interest that they tend to focus on more technical areas and the kind of political reform to one side. So um, it, they, they perhaps not push this as hard as they could. Um, that said, the nature of the region and also the, 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 the nature of, of modern European populations, there are huge uh, civil society and population links between um, all of these countries and various European countries. And you have transnational, trans-Mediterranean civil society networks, which undoubtedly can be used and are used to try and encourage uh, uh, sort of the development of, of, of NGOs and civil society, uh, sorry, civil rights groups within within these countries. So you, you can you can help uh, by those by those various means. The EU has also um, the European Union has also promised to make other funds available um, through its um, through its spring. 
funding stream. And it's also promised, whether it does or not, and this, this flies in contradiction to what's actually happening, it's also promised to encourage and, and, and facilitate the, mo the mobility of people as well, in particular students, and in increase sort of uh, cross-Mediterranean uh, study. And there are, there are programmes for that. Are you asking? No. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, I have a question which is really a comparison between so Morocco and Tunisia. I mean, there was a World Bank report out about two years ago, uh, I think about state capture, basically claiming that sort of the law, I mean, legislation and also how it was, uh, how it was implemented was basically rigged in Tunisia to favor the business interests of the of the Ben Ali uh, Trabelsi family, while it seems, at least to me in Morocco, that there's more free competition, but that this sort of king uh, royal family instead has more sort of business interest in a lot of industries in finance. I don't know if they are involved in the phosphate industry, do you, with the OCP, but would you, uh, yeah, if you could say a bit about this and how that <coughs> might have affected the... Uh, so democratization and also the strengths of the uh, different regimes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And um, I mean, th th you're quite right. I mean, in the case of, of Tunisia, another sort of smaller aspect of the Rubitskian Way model, in addition to um, the uh, power of the ruling party and the power of the security forces, is the degree to which the regime controls the economy. This is very much kind of a, a kind of a, a poor relation. Of, of, of organizational power, but it is, it is a factor. And those regimes which have uh, significant control over the economy are better able to manipulate the political process. Not only does it give them resources, but it also allows them to exploit um, people's contracts to effectively intimidate and bully them. And there, are, there have been reports of people you know, being instructed by their managers to vote in certain ways or being you know, intimidated. In, in Tunisia and, and, and elsewhere in the region as well. So you know, pu public, public servants in particular are, are exposed to this. Um, one of the things that the, that the Trabelsi clan um, did wrong was that they got, they got greedy, and, and um, uh, Francesco Cavatorta, who was uh, here last week at a workshop that has written about this, and, and that they essentially alienated s at least parts of the Tunisian middle class because they were essentially being excluded from some of the more profitable areas of the, uh, of the economy and, and certain opportunities. And that was one of the reasons why, when kind of push came to shove, not enough people wanted the regime to survive and were happy for it to, to top. Yeah. Um, this gentleman in the shirt. Thank you for the interesting talk. Um, so, for um, so this, the model obviously tries to implement democratization into these countries, but does it also um, sort of study whether democracy would work in a social aspect in the Mag in the Maghreb or in Arab countries in general? Because um, I mean, we've seen a few examples where democracy was put into place and then due to differences in social or religious beliefs, it didn't particularly work. Or, as you said, um, 
it seems that monarchies seem to last whilst republics don't. Um, and I think Jordan, for example, is a very good example of that, where you know, they claim to be a constitutional monarchy, but in fact um, the king sort of controls the parliament. And uh, when it comes to parliamentary elections, it's a lot more to do with what family or tribe you're from as opposed to political merit as such. Um, so how do you think the model kind of, does it take that into account and if it does, how? The model doesn't, doesn't really take that into account. Um, it's, it's, it's less interested in sort of argument, you know, these broader arguments about, if you like, cultural appetite for, for democracy and democratization. Um, beyond this though, I, I mean, one of the, one of the things that, that um, North African studies, Middle Eastern studies is, 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 is grappling, one of the issues it's grappling with um, was the, um, I mean, the, the build-up to the Arab Spring, the emphasis it put on uh, authoritarian um, uh, regimes, the, the, the survival of authoritarian regimes, why that, why there, there were so many in the region, why they survived, and that kind of touched on on arguments of of kind of cultural, uh, as I say, cultural appetite for for broader democratization. The Arab Spring, and, and in particular Tunisia, has kind of really challenged that because it's it's clearly. You know, it's not about Arab countries not wanting democracies or Arab populations not wanting to democratize. That's, that's clearly not the case. It's about re-kind of tooling regional studies to better cater for and better allow for that because it had kind of fallen by the wayside as a consequence of um, you know, people getting a bit comfortable with the political status quo in the region. Thank you. At the back. I just want to ask some Western intervention in the Middle East and um, North Africa in general. Is it um, a blessing or a cast? So could you re repeat the question? Um, Western intervention in the Middle East and North Africa in general, is it a blessing or a cast in terms of democratization? Very, very good, good question. Um, I mean, in, in, terms of, in terms of the Maghreb, um, Recent intervention has been, it's, it, it's actually not really been about, as I argue, it's been less concerned with promoting democratization as perhaps it, it claims to be and as perhaps it should be. Um, Morocco, Tunisia, um, as I said, were, were very, very keen to forge closer relations with the West and in particular with the European Union because of the economic benefits of doing so uh, and also uh, social benefits as well. Uh, making it easier for, for people to, to move about and to, to move to Europe to study and, and work and all, all, all the rest of it. Um, you know, seemingly, despite these strong links, the region still hasn't democratized. And, and when the impulse came in Tunisia, it came from within. It didn't really come from without. And Europe and the West behaved um, uh, quite... It respond, they responded quite lately. And you also look at what happened in in Egypt and the very equivocal positions that Western governments took on, on what happened there. So, um, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're, we're, we're as, as necessarily committed to promoting democratization. Sorry, we, the West is necessarily as committed to promoting democratization as it, as, it, as it claims it is and perhaps it should be. Converse, I would say in the West's, West, Western government's defense is that it's, it's just so fearsomely difficult and um, 
I, I stood in Aberystwyth and I was lectured by a guy called Professor Steve Smith, who's, who's very prominent now. I remember nothing from his lectures, I'm ashamed to say, apart from one thing in which he said that international politics de is defined by dilemmas and not problems. And I think that's very true. So governments have to make judgment calls about how they maximize their own interests while you know, being good international citizens. And European governments have, have done that by often siding with fairly authoritarian regimes. Hello. Uh, I'm interested in knowing whether the Levinsky model uh, deals with uh, things like border and territory conflicts, as it is the case uh, with Morocco and Algeria. Um, you said that Rabat is more involved with Western governments than, um, than Algeria is, uh, but there are const constantly people being detained and sort of, uh, imprisoned by both parties. So is the model uh, dealing with anything of that sort? Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. It, it, sorry, it's in my bag. It's really shaken up. Um, it, they, they don't particularly. Um, I mean, the, 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 the transnational relations they tend to focus on are um, mainly in terms of a regime's relationship with the West, with the European Union, and with, with the United States, and also these sort of counter-hegemonic black knight which is a bit of a sinister name, um, patrons, which tend to be non-Western powers, in particular Russia and China, but occasionally uh, Japan and also France has played this role on occasion. And the degree to which they provide military, diplomatic, economic and other support to the regime and therefore enable it to resist, better resist any democratizing pressure put on it. But they don't really look at sort of regional politics in, in any great detail. The, so the extent to which Morocco is influenced by Algeria and how their relations are essentially um, perhaps poisoning or, 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 or retarding the, the advent of democracy. About the, your choice of the case uh, for countries, uh, I have a question. Uh, the merit and demerit uh, must exist uh, in uh, excluding Libya and adding uh, Mauritania as a case. Uh, what do you think is the main point and main uh, merit of adding Mauritania as a case? Please explain it. Thank you very much. I, I mean, ideally, I wanted to write a book about about the Maghreb. I mean, as I said, that there are not many studies that, that focus solely on this particular region. Uh, Michael Willis wrote one a few years ago, which was, which was very good, but there aren't many that look at it solely at the Maghreb. They, they tend to incorporate other parts of North Africa um, and, and the wider Middle East. Definitions of the Maghreb um, vary. Um, the core countries are obviously Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. I would have liked to have included Libya, but because of the breakdown in, in centralised government, you, you simply couldn't, I simply couldn't apply Levitsky and Way's model to it. They do have certain criteria that you need to satisfy to be able to be considered, or for a country to be considered by their model, for you to apply their model to it. And I take certain liberties with them, but that would have been 
a liberty too far, I think, unfortunately. So um, if I ever get the chance to write a volume two, and if Libya ever isn't in a state of civil war, then I will try and incorporate it. Could, could I abuse the power of the chairman and just ask a, a vague general question myself? You were pointing out that um, the differences between the four Maghreb countries you're looking at owe a lot to their own different experiences of colonization. Um, I was just wondering, as the era of colonialism fades into history, is there any broad trend of convergence or cross-fertilization in the four countries in their political experience or um, practice, or are they still set on, over the long period, divergent paths? Thank you very much. Um, I, I think that they're still on, that they're on quite different paths, and I, I'm very aware, we, we've had this discussion in, in, in previous sessions, particularly with Algeria, about constantly going back to the war of liberation. You know, you wouldn't do that, you wouldn't seek to explain you know, Jeremy Corbyn's success in taking over the, the Labour Party by saying it all began in 1962. Um, you, you don't do it for other places, but we do it constantly for, for Algeria, and I'm, I'm very mindful of that. Um, but I, I do think that it's, it's unique experiences uh, during colonisation explain the degree, it's the extent of its reluctance to forge uh, as close a relations with the European Union as Tunisia and Morocco, which are both very eager to, to do so. Um, I think what, what the Arab Spring shows is that even though um, three of the four countries I look at have uh, essentially stayed as they are and are the, have similar types of regime in that, they're, that three of them are competitive authoritarian, they have remained like that for different reasons. So they are there is still that nuance and, and variation uh, between them, despite their you know, obvious uh, similarities in, in other respects. Uh, you've mentioned their, uh, their reluctance of Algeria to have ties with Europe, and you also talked about the very uh, light leverage of the European Union above Morocco. So I was thinking about another way you mentioned for Mauritania, which is their diaspora, uh, which is, would be another way for those countries to have some influence from the outside. I was thinking, I, I, I just wanted your thoughts on how the Moroccan, Algerian, and Tunisian diasporas have influence on the democratization of, their, of these countries. Thank you very much. Um, and that is, uh, that, that's a very good question. The, um, the, the, the scholar at Oxford at the Migration Centre I mentioned earlier, whose name I can't, very embarrassing, I can't remember, um, he has, he's done some very interesting research um, looking at the ways in which um, politically marginalised people in Morocco have moved to Europe and by becoming citizens of France or Spain or, or wherever it is they've moved to, have been able to essentially acquire a political voice and then by that means influence their own government. So you've got this sort of indirect way of, of feeding back into their own political systems, sometimes most directly that there are, you've got a, you know, a certain number of, of members of parliament are, are elected by your diaspora, but also through kind of pressure groups and by putting pressure and, and petitioning your, your new government, so by petitioning the French or the Spanish or whoever it might be, and, and asking them to you know, raise a particular issue. So 
they, they, that, that's one way in which they can do so. The other is simply by – it's less of an issue now because of the improved means of, of communication, but, but by providing um, additional information, alternative viewpoints, so you can, um, you can perhaps counteract some of the official lines and interpretations of events and what's happened by saying actually – you know, this is how it's viewed in Germany or, or the Netherlands or what have you. This is, this is you know, an alternative take on it. And the other way is through civil society organisations, um, you know, establishing links with sister and brother organisations in the country they're operating and providing support and encouragement for them to petition their political leaders to, to democratise. So there's, there's the kind of various ways in which it, it, is, it is possible and does, does happen. How self-renewing are the authoritarian regimes? Um, or is it the case that perhaps a certain generation has to pass through and then uh, there might be more of a possibility of democratization? I think one of the, the really interesting things about the, um, about the Maghreb is the extent to which they have been self-renewing. Um, in Morocco, uh, I mean, King, King Mohammed has described it as, as an executive uh, monarchy, um, which is very polite way of, of putting it, but obviously, um, you know, the palace has, has got huge powers, and until that's changed, <laughs> they, they will be passed on from generation to generation. Algeria, um, likewise, the army has had an influence, and a say, on, on every president who's taken power. Um, one of the big questions is what happens when Bouteflika dies, who will succeed him, but it's that system has, has remained in place since 1962, so has, has perpetuated itself. Similarly with, with Tunisia, you had Bourguiba, you had Ben Ali, who was in power until early 2011. So again, an enormous capacity to renew and perpetuate themselves. Um, same is also true of Egypt, uh, which has essentially re returned to the, the status quo um, pre-ante, uh, the, the, the system that existed with, with Mubarak, so I, I think that the evidence is very. Okay, well, unless there are any more. Hey. One more? Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to um, ask you if you uh, analyzed the case of Algeria as being different uh, from Morocco and Tunisia because of its history and the uh, phases of violence, terrible violence it went through, which may uh, be a factor uh, which maintains the system uh, as it is because people don't want to live violence again. Uh, first with the war, the terrible, uh, horrible war, uh, and the colonization which lasted 130 years, and the revolution, and the decade of terrorism as well, uh, which followed the sort of Algerian spring, uh, which left terror uh, and fear in the country, so people don't want to see violence happening again or another Arab Spring uh, happening, since Algeria went through its Arab Spring somehow uh, in the 80s, which led to some democracy with uh, recognition of the different parties, including the extremist Islamist party, which uh, brought a decade of uh, terrorism and people are just tired of violence I think uh, so they just want to, 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 to live with uh, whatever conditions that bring uh, peace. Mm. Uh, moreover seeing th this 
uh, slogans uh, of <coughs> democracy uh, in Libya, I mean, the West, uh, Sarkozy was saying before going to Libya that they wanted democracy in Libya, Bush democracy in Iraq, and so they saw that uh, the, the uh, principle of democracy brought by the West uh, led to chaos in some countries as well. So all these factors may, may uh, be a reason why uh, Algeria uh, would rather uh, be stable than go through violence again. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's certainly the case. There is uh, you know, very much a, a, a people tired of, of, of the violence and, and, the, and the bloodshed and the, the loss of life that, that has, has occurred. Certainly when the Arab Spring first began in Tunisia, Algeria was, was seen as being a prime target for change, in part because of its experiences during uh, the, the early 1990s. That, that essentially the, the Algerian people had already been here once before and that they, they kind of had a muscle memory of what to do. And, and also, when they, they did mount protests, the uh, security forces were very wary of, of what they'd done and their reputation as a result of the Black October riots and, and, and you know, the consequences of that. Another interesting corollary of Al Algeria, and which relates to the Levitskian Way model, Levitskian Way um, observed that... Um, during when the Cold War came to an end, why some communist regimes democratized, those in Eastern Europe democratized, but others in Southeast Asia didn't. One of the factors that they, they identified was the, uh, how recently the country had experienced revolutionary violence and whether the people in power had been part of that. Um, they argued that, that leaders with experience of waging, of fighting these kind of wars and of waging these Kind of this, this kind of violence and achieving power in that kind of way have a determination and a knowledge to keep power which exceeds that of other regimes. And in that respect, Algeria is unique of, of all the region's countries because of the way it achieved independence and the violence of the 1990s and, and 2000, that, that those in power have have direct personal experience of winning and retaining power, so that it's, a, it's a, something unique to the country. Okay. Um, I think that brings us to uh, pretty well the end. Um, I'm asked to remind everybody that uh, the next MEC Middle East Centre lecture will be on the 9th of February when, as it says up there, um, Benedetta Voltolini will talk about EU foreign policy in the Middle East and Africa. Um, that leaves it only for me to thank Jonathan King for a very interesting talk and uh, answering all our questions with great clarity and patience. And uh, thank you very much.